Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. In the 11th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we take a trek to the heights of Kinder Scout. We discover historic writings about the Peak District in a new anthology. We try to work out the best dog walk on the southwest coast path and... More I can honestly say, if I worked for OS, the Ordnance Survey Group, I'd be a very happy girl. <laughs> Former gladiator Diane Newdale shares her passion for walking and OS maps. Welcome to the 11th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your walking guide taking you through 30 minutes of walking and outdoor listening. It's the beginning of December in Britain and the winter weather is truly on its way. But don't be downhearted as winter is a great time to go out walking. And there's some good advice about walking in winter on our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk. One walk which is superb in winter is the classic route of the mass trespass to the summit of Kinder Scout in the Peak District. And audio blogger Dean Reed decided there was no better way to wrap up this 80th anniversary year of that monumental event for him to go up and retrace the route. And he's taking us along too. Welcome to the Peak District, but more specifically, the Bowden Bridge car park near Hayfield. We've parked here for today. We're going to go for a walk up Kinder Scout, the classic Hayfield route. So I'm standing at the moment in the Bowden Bridge car park and this place is very famous. It was from here on the 24th of April 1932 that Benny Rothman and 400 others set off on their trespass up onto Kinder Scout. The mass trespass marked the beginning of a media campaign by the Ramblers Association culminating in the Countryside and Rights Away Act 2000. At the moment I'm standing next to the plaque it commemorates the event and it was commissioned for the 50th anniversary in 1982. It was by a local artist called Peter Senior. It's a great looking thing. I'm just having a look up at it now. The weather today is rather damp. I've no doubt that it's going to be really muddy and quite boggy underfoot today, but we'll see how we go. Next to the plaque, there is a bench and on the bench, there is a poem by Derek Ward. And the poem says, as I trudge through the peat at a pace so slow, there's a time to remember the debt we owe to the kinder trespass and the rights they did seek, allowing us freely to ramble the dark peak. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to ramble the dark peak. So let's get moving. We just walked up the first incline of the day and we're now overlooking Kinder Reservoir. I've just noticed there is a brand new sign marking the centenary of the reservoir, which was built in 1912. It's a great looking sign with a wealth of information about the area and about the reservoir itself. The rain has just started to fall down now, but the sun is breaking through the clouds. So it's going to be a very changeable day. 
We've just reached the bottom of William Clough now, another very famous landmark in the fight for the right to roam. And there is a signpost here, put here by the National Trust, and it commemorates the date of 24th of April 1932. And it says this was the scene where the Ramblers confronted landowners and police demanding the right to enjoy fresh air, open spaces and freedom. The mass trespass, as it became known, ended with violent clashes and five ramblers in prison. But from that day on, the right to roam became more than just a dream for ordinary people. Now the National Trust grants access for all onto these spellbinding moors. Forever, for everyone. And what a great sentiment that is. The wind is rushing down William Clough at the minute and it's carrying some rain with it. But we're going to carry on and keep moving up to Ashup Head. We've made it to the top of William Clough and we're standing at Ashup Head now in between Mill Hill and Kinder Scout where we join the Pennine Way. I've got my back to the wind at the moment looking back down William Clough towards the Kinder Reservoir as the wind is belting across this little saddle in between the two hills here and it's carrying with it some nice icy cold rain. So from here we're going to head up onto Kinder Scout and we're going to find the wreckage of the Canadian Sabre Jets. We've made it up onto the plateau now. We are currently in the cloud. I think the cloud base is around about 500 metres today. And at this precise moment in time, I'm stood amongst the wreckage of the two Canadian Sabre Jets that crashed here in 1954. So they took off from their base at linton on Ouse near York and they failed to reply to radio messages and simply disappeared. A group of ramblers found the wreckage later that evening and it can only be assumed that they collided mid-air. It's quite a mystery really why they were so far off course. They were around about 50 miles off course and the wreckage is spread across quite a large area and I'm currently standing at grid reference SK06918965 and if you head towards where I'm stood now you'll find lots of wreckage. There's all sorts of different components and parts strewn across the moors here and there is also some more wreckage to be found down in the Ashup Valley. But If you head to the coordinates that I've just mentioned and then continue walking up the Peak Gruff you'll find quite a lot more. It's quite a mysterious looking place today and as we arrived here we saw a mountain hare amongst the wreckage and as we got here he ran away. So we're going to continue on now from the Sabre Jeps up towards Kinder Downfall. We've made it to Kinder Downfall now and we've got a northerly wind today so there's a really icy cold breeze coming across the plateau. If you manage to find yourself here on a day where there's a southerly wind then if you're standing where I'm standing at the minute you're going to get very wet <laughs> as the wind rushes up the valley and the waterfall turns into reverse. It's a great spectacle, a great sight to see but um, you can get very wet if you're walking across the top. We're standing at the trig point now at Kinderlow and it's very windy. The cloud base has lifted slightly up to around about 800 metres I think. The views are excellent today. Slightly misty in some places and there's rain off towards Castleton area now but it really is a fantastic day. 
over towards Manchester the cloud is breaking and the sun is shining down over towards where the airport is. If I look now I can see Pimchir, I can see down into the Edel Valley, I can see Mamtor, Loose Hill, Wind Hill. It really is excellent up here today. I'm trying to shelter you as best as possible from the wind. It's been really quite strong on the route across from Kinder Downfall. And out on the moors, I managed to spot some of the workers from Moors for the Future. We can really see now the work that they've been doing, planting. It's really starting to take hold, covering some of the bare peat. So it's excellent that this work's being undertaken to preserve this place for the future. Okay, we're going to carry on and drop down now to Kinderlow End. We're currently on Kinderlow End and I've managed to find something that I've known about for a long while but have failed on previous trips to manage to locate it and it's the cavern. The name of it is actually the Belfry and the coordinates are SK068178655. As I'm standing here now I can look inside it and I'll just stick my head inside. It's a very tight squeeze and all up one side is a lot of really gooey green slime and it's quite a squeeze. We've managed to get down as far as we can but the next little section is going to require getting very wet and very dirty. For those of you who are familiar with the sport of geocaching, there looks to be a Tupperware container further on in the cave and we can't quite get to it at the moment. So if we were to come back in a drier day, hopefully we're going to find that that is a geocache. We're back down at the sealed road now, just following the river down towards where it meets the River Kinder. And the section there in between Kinderlow End and Tunstead Clough Farm is always very slippy. And today it really was slippy. Quite treacherous there across the farmland, very muddy and quite loose underfoot. But as I said, we're back down on the sealed road now with only a few hundred metres to go until we reach the quarry at Bowden Bridge. We're back down at the Bowden Bridge car park now and I've just checked ViewRanger, which is a great app that I use on my iPhone and it's been tracking our location whilst we've been walking. And the distance that this walk has been today is seven and a half miles. And also with ViewRanger, I've been broadcasting my position to a great website called shareyouradventure.com that I would highly recommend that you check out. It allows you to track your position and when you tweet it plots it on a map. It also plots your images, audio boos, bamboos of videos and lots of other things. Okay, thanks for listening and I'll speak to you all again soon. If you want to follow more of Dean's excellent audio walks through the Peak District, then pop along to his website peakroots.com and you can find out more information about it on our blog which you can find by clicking through from our homepage at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. Few people know more about the Peak District than Rowley Smith. He's written so many books about the area, he's dubbed Mr Peak District by his local newspaper in Bakewell. Certainly, Rowley's former career as a journalist and as Head of Information Services to the Peak District National Park has stood him in good stead and he has a way with words that few can match. His latest publication isn't a walking route book, however. It's something a bit different, 
So I'm glad to say that Rowley joins me now. Rowley, thanks for coming on the podcast. Tell us more about the new book. It's a collection of, of writings on the Peak District through the ages, which, strangely enough, seeing it's such a popular place, had not been done before. But I've collected um, books and descriptions of the Peak for many years now, and I've always wanted to put them all together in a book. Plus, it's illustrated by some really lovely old period engravings from some of the books, and some modern photographs by my friend Karen Frankel. So you've got, it's ancient and modern, if you like. Got a bit of everything. <laughs> what illustrations do they portray of the peak in the past? Well, I go back to, really right back to the start when the, the wonders of the peak uh, were first really laid down by um, William Camden in 1586. And that's the first recorded version of the seven wonders of the peak. And really, I suppose, the first tourism book on, on the peak. But it goes through right through from Isaac Walton and Charles Cotton, the complete angler, was based in, in Dovedale, and through, you know, Victorian novelists who, who wrote about it, people like George Eliot and Charlotte Bronte, right through to modern writers such as Jim Perrin, Brian Redhead and uh, Roger Redfern, people like that. So it, it goes through the whole history of literature, really, on the Peak District. He really demonstrates how important this landscape is, I suppose, to the, to the human condition, doesn't it? Yes, well, I've always thought, you know, the Peak District is, is the most important national park in Europe, probably, because of just, just where it is, you know, it, it, between Sheffield and Manchester and the middle of northern England. You know, half the population of the country lives within 60 miles of the Peak District. So it's always been important, and strangely enough, the great artists really didn't seem to come to it. They went to the Lake District in Snowdonia, but they didn't come to the Peak District. But writers always have, and they've written about it uh, over the years, and it's been a great pleasure to put them all together into this anthology. And publications such as the Manchester Evening News feature in the struggle to try to get access to the landscape. Uh, we go back to the old trespass, of course, in 1932, which was really the most iconic single event in the history of the campaign for access to mountain and moorland. And we, as you know, we've just celebrated the 80th anniversary of that. That was really uh, the catalyst to all sorts of things, including the national parks, uh, which, of course, the um, Peak District was the first in 1951. The words that people have written about the peak over the years have all added to the to the wonderful literature that we've got on the place. A lot of them have campaigned towards its protection, which, as you know, I finished up working for the Peak District National Park. I think it is the most important in the country, and it's certainly the most visited and the most loved, I would say, uh, uh, but a landscape that's quite often underrated. But some of these wonderful descriptions over the years just shows how beautiful and how different and how diverse this landscape is. And the coming of the railways opened up the peak to tourists, didn't it? That's right, yes, they did. Uh, but not everybody was very happy about that. John Ruskin, for example, was very angry, as he was in the Lake District, <laughs> of seeing the railways come and uh, allowing the common class of uh, shopkeepers, as he called them, to come into places like the lakes and the peak. So not everybody was for the railways, but you're right, it certainly the coming of the railways started the great tourism boom which is still going on, of course. Every fool from Buxton can be in Bakewell, can't they? That's the one. That's the quote. <laughs> <laughs> from John Ruskin, yes, he wasn't for the Midland line, but now, of course, the Monsal Viaduct, which is what he, he really fumed against. But now that, that structure is a protected building. So, 
you know, fashions change, don't they? And with a number of reservoirs in the peak, it could be described as a mini lake district. Well, the Upper Derwent Valley, where you've got the Lady Bower, the Derwent and Howden reservoirs, has been described as a peak district's lake district. Uh, people love it, especially people from Sheffield and the eastern side of the peak love the Upper Derwent Valley and go there in huge numbers. It's an entirely uh, unnatural landscape as it happens. The reservoirs uh, are man-made, obviously, hmm. and they're surrounded by conifers, which the water companies used to plant to protect the purity of the water. So what you're looking at there is trees and water, but it's entirely unnatural. But it's still a very popular place, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Rolly. Pleasure. And there's links to Rolly's new book on our blog, where you can also find two of our Peak District video walks, one along part of the Monsell Trail over the Monsell Viaduct and one alongside the famous Lady Bower Reservoir. The Southwest Coast Path is one of the 15 national trails in England and Wales. And at some 630 miles, it's the longest, running through the counties of Somerset, Devon, Cornwall and Dorset. The path was completed in 1978, and research in 2003 indicated that nearly 28% of all visitors to the region came because of the path. And now there's a competition with a distinctly doggy flavour, and to tell us more about it is the South West Coast Paths Communications and Project Officer Alex Green. So Alex, what's this competition all about? We're launching a competition to find the best dog walk in the West. Any dog walk along the Southwest Coast Path that are particularly favourite among dog walkers. There are hundreds of dog walks on our website that take in a a dog-friendly beach or a dog-friendly pub along the way. And we want to find out which one is the best. The needs of dog walkers differ slightly from non-dog walkers. And there are plenty of dog-friendly places along the path and just off it, aren't there? Yes, yes, there are. Um, Some beaches are only dog-friendly for a certain time of year, so some of the walks on our website that are particularly dog-friendly are the ones that are open all year round, and they accept dogs uh, whenever. But the coast path itself is dog-friendly. The whole route of the coast path allows dogs, and where they do take in a beach, it's usually along the back of the beach, or there'll be one side of the beach that allows dogs so we are entirely dog friendly but we we do want to find out what are the walks that people do on a regular basis with their dog and why is it particularly special to them it'll be interesting to see what people's favorite walks are because there's so many to choose from along the southwest coast path there are we have had a few entries into the competition already the competition is live now on our website Some of the votes that we've had so far include walks such as Head and Mouth and walks along the beaches around Torbay. We have got a dog-friendly video on our website that's quite interesting. A local dog expert, Stephen Jenkinson, came to walk with me and my dog Lenny along the southwest coast path around Padstow. And he gave lots of good tips for being a responsible dog walker along the coast path. And obviously... Picking up your dog's mess is one of the primary tips that uh, keeps everybody happy, but also the safety aspects of things like throwing sticks 
books actually and it gives options for how to stop your dog from smelling in the in, mm. in the local pub at the end of your walk if he's you know been rolling around tomato ketchup apparently if you rub that into the fouling area it apparently uh, muffles the scent so uh interesting right <laughs> i'll have to remember that I've got um, two border collies, Maisie and Merlin. Yeah. So it'd be a good tip to try on them. They have to get smelly. You don't want to upset everybody else in the pub, do you? So well, not everybody, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so who's going to be judging the competition? Well, we've got a well-known dog lover backing this dog walk campaign, Monty Halls, uh, oh, well-known yes, yeah. of The Great Escapes. TV series and Fisherman's Apprentice. His favourite dog walk with his dog Reuben is from Kynance Cove to Caswith on the Lizard, actually, which is where he filmed the Fisherman's Apprentice. That really is a stunning walk. Yeah, it is indeed. And he's based actually on the coast in Dartmouth in South Devon. And he also particularly likes the, the coastline around there and, and Scabacombe Beach towards Brixham and, and Berry Head is another one of their favourites. So will Reuben be picking the overall winner? I, I think it would only be appropriate if Reuben picked the winner, definitely. I think so, too, definitely, <laughs> yes. Uh, there is a great prize as well for the most popular dog walk. Anybody that votes for the walk that makes the top spot will be chosen uh, at random to win a year's supply of dog food uh, supplied by Laughing Dog. So a nice incentive to get out there and get voting. And So how can people vote for their favourite walk? Well, if you go to our website, southwestcoastpath.com, and there's a, a button there for vote for your top dog walk in the West. And you'll uh, be guided to an entry form. That's great. And we'll have to bring Maisie and Merlin down to walk along the eventual winning walk yeah, too. Yeah, That'll be great. Yeah. I'm sure they'll love it. Oh, <laughs> Maisie's yeah. looking at me now saying yes. yes, yes. <laughs> Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Angie. Now, she might be familiar to those of you with long memories as Jet in the blockbuster ITV Saturday night series Gladiators. But Diane Newdale is a passionate walker, as well as a qualified psychotherapist. She came out with me on my local walk through one of Doncaster's many woods, and I asked her how she got into walking. Oh, um, I was nine years old. My mum was a member of the Ramblers Club over in what would have then been sort of North Yorkshire into the Teesside area. And I say that because I think the first walks I did were around Rosebury Topping, Great Ayton, and that whole kind of line of the Cleveland Hills. And you know what? I actually didn't enjoy it. Isn't that awful? But I was a, a gymnast as a child, and at about the age of nine, I'd become a member of the British squad. So I was doing, like, stupid amounts of training each week. So to go for a nine-mile walk, which would have meant on a Sunday, one of the rare Sundays I'd have had off to be walking for hours on end when I could have been thinking of gymnastic moves and choreographing a new routine and, 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 and listening to more music to get more ideas for a new floor routine. It was just like, oh, do I have to? But it had sown a very, very big deep seed which has germinated beautifully. <laughs> so what does it mean to you now? Oh, it, it, it's, it's literally like coming home for me, and it, it's where I connect. I mean, you could get all spiritual and all. I mean, some, some people have lots of words for it, but it's just where I feel most at peace and, and happy. And 
I walk quite a bit with my sister and her husband always used to point this out as well. Whenever I'd go walking, sort of things seem to happen. Like we see an extra clump of deer or a water bowl. Just little things, like we hear something or something. And it's like, when's you're around? You're weird. I'm like, no, it's just because we're picking up on it more. It's everything. I was really got into walking in my early 20s with my first partner. And he was ex-army and he was training to do some quite adventurous stuff with the army, with the SAS and things like that back then. So there we went off tabbing. And I just slowly, in Surrey, where I was living, on the North Downs, quite gentle hills, got into walking. And over the years, the walking went, got bigger and bigger and bigger, up to doing some of the bigger walks in Scotland. Come down a little bit since then, just do a few in the lakes now. But um, I cannot go a day, really, even without a dog, uh, to not walk now. Do you think it's a bit like Radio 4, that you go into walking? Yeah, I like that. I, I think that's one of the best descriptions you could, you could say, because I think it is something that may be into your 20s, and if you have the right influences around you, and you already love the great outdoors for other reasons, then yes, I think walking may be something you grow into. For me, it was definitely via the route of people that already loved or needed to walk to get fit. And I needed to do a lot of training, of course, for the show Gladiators, which I did again in my early 20s. And I can't bear gyms, hate gyms, concrete, plastic, you know, digital readouts. I'm out here. (laughs) This is my gym. (laughs) In fact, a crew came over one day when I was living in Surrey to film me training. And I went, oh, take it to my gym. And I said, follow me, follow me. So they were in the cars following me. And I took them to Putnam Common. So if we went down to the common, marched up a big hill. Now, where's your gym? Where's your gym? And there was a bench with a beautiful view from the North Downs right out towards the South Downs. And I went, this is my gym. And I'm like, what? I said, bench, own, own weight resistance. Lovely figure of eight up and down this hill. Mat on the floor, don't need any more. And they were like, ah. And this is like 1991 when, you know, outdoor training wasn't the thing. It's just what some people did because it's where you're happiest. So what are some of your favourite areas to walk? Gosh, um, but over the years, I'll always have a love for Surrey because it's where I really kind of started walking. The Surrey Hills are very gentle and very beautiful. And to this day, I still love Surrey. But I'm from the north and I'm Udale. So in, in literally in my DNA, the whole family, I think, originate. You can actually trace the Udale family lines. And then we've got, we've got someone running. Oh, oh, no, she's not. She's gone slightly off to the side. But I think she was shouting for a dog. She's got a collie dog with her, Andrew. And I, and I, think, I think the collie's been going sort of off-piste. <laughs> I don't think she was very happy. Any second now, you'll see her. Oh, she's gone. And over the years, I think most walkers will always hit the lakes. West Ross, west coast of Scotland, where the uh, Turidian mountain range are, uh, are some that I want to do. Ben Egg is the next one I want to do. It's virtually straight up and straight down. I'm looking forward to that. And, and I think coming a little bit closer to home, being a northerner originally, I've bought a place in Weardale, so I'm now discovering some of the places in, in Weardale and, and Teesdale, which is sort of slightly prettier version of Weardale, because Weardale's rugged. It sort of starts and lifts you up into the Pennines, and next thing you're out going towards Cumbria and the lakes. So I'm just, just discovering so, so much. But one of my favourite little walks and it, it is only about four or five miles at that it's something called the Waynestones. they are just again on the, the neck of the north yorkshire moors looking back over the teesside basin and all its industry going out towards the north sea and i love it because i my dad took me on it many many years ago when i was younger and it was just 
it was quite a moving walk so I think we'd lost a member of the family and and every time I go it's got the right amount of forest up little scramble up some rocks and then right across a lovely flat top with the most beautiful views and it's just the right amount of exhilaration if you haven't got a lot of time it's the one to bag particularly if you've got a dog or a friend you're introducing to the area but um I'm being you Dale we've done this thing where we would trace our family line like everyone has done and you can get the Udales literally down to one line all from the Derwent uh, Keswick area of the Lake District so I suppose sort of hills mountains and lakes are in my DNA having said that though I coastal walks you know you, you can't I just want it all I'm not greedy am I really <laughs> would you like to come and do some walks for us Yes. In fact, I was thrilled at the top of the year to have come across your work. And I just thought, you've done exactly what I'd have loved to have done in my heart of heart. But because of all the other things I juggle in my life, just have not had the time. And what you're doing is you're doing it beautifully because there's a generosity in what you're doing. You've allowed people to share little nuggets and little insights into walks that they may want to go and do and and explore. And that makes it really good for us to sort of be able to check out on the website for us to go, well, I will go there because that looks exactly like a little bit of what I want. So I'd I'd love to uh, contribute and I think I'll do some stuff up in Weardale. Slit Falls is one of the first ones. It's just a series of waterfalls up on a, a one to two mile incline all the way up. And it's just a very gentle walk back down. But it, it's so pretty. But if there's a feature of history that's there, I'm immediately back on my OS map, looking at roughly what date and time it would have been on the internet, researching. And, and that's me because I'm, I'm a bit of a geek in that way. And I have a confession to an absolute obsession with OS maps. I love maps. I've always loved maps. And the more I've got into walking, the more I can honestly say if I worked for OS, for the Ordnance Survey Group, I'd be a very happy girl. (laughs) So be sure to look out for some of Diane's walks on our website soon. Well, that's all from another packed podcast. There's another edition in the middle of December too. So please subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Audioboo to make sure you don't miss it. Until then, thanks for listening and happy walking.